Good evening, everyone. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs here at the Pratt, and I'm really glad to see all, all of you here this evening. We're um, very pleased to co-sponsor this reading this evening with the Maryland Humanities Council. And Andrea Lewis, who is a program officer at the Maryland Humanities Council, is going to introduce uh, Chimamanda Adichie. However, I just wanted to say one thing, and that is that um, in February of 2004, when Purple Hibiscus um, was published, and Chimamanda was still a student at Hopkins Writing Seminar, um, we had uh, we hosted a reading for her here, and I was just telling, asking her if she remembered. Um, it was downstairs in the Poe room, and I remembered that we had perhaps it was a Sunday afternoon. We had perhaps nine people here. <laughs> she corrected me, and she said, "Oh, I think there were only two." <laughs> So um, you can see that she has come a long way in almost 10 years. And so, Andrea, I'm going to turn the microphone over to you, and she will do the introduction. Thank you, Judy. Good evening. It's great that so many of you have joined us. Uh, I agree with Judy. What a difference 10 years make. And I, I truly believe from, from all the folks I have spoken with, uh, and I should have mentioned, I'm with the Maryland Humanities Council, and we are the home of the Maryland Center for the Book, and partner with Pratt Library on a number of things throughout the year. And uh, so I often find myself in conversations about books, um, and your name comes up fairly often. So it's lovely to meet you and to be here uh, to hear you talk about your latest novel. And I will be brief because you're not here to hear me, but I will say say if you have not picked up your copy or have not yet had a chance uh, to read it, get your copy outside, get it signed, you will be so happy that you did. Uh, her Miss Adichie's latest novel, Americana, um, is, I felt something that takes us to places which we should be brave enough to go, but don't. It leads us to topics we should discuss, but often shy away from, like race and skin tone and hair texture and weight issues, and how all of it is wrapped in personal assumptions that are influenced and developed over many, many years. And I read a wonderful quote uh, by Aaron, Brady, Aaron Beatty of the Boston Review that I thought really spoke to how I felt uh, while reading the book. And he said, Americana can be painfully blunt, but it's never unkind and it's never purposely hurtful, and it is meant to be funny. If she touches on uncomfortable topics, such as racial tension between Africans and African Americans, for example, or the silliness of white people, she does so without judgment, only deep and careful interest in the things that human beings do. So please, let's give a warm Pratt Library welcome to Chimamanda Adichie. Thank you. Thank you all so much for coming. It's very lovely for me to be here because Baltimore, in some ways, is my American hometown. And the last time I was here to speak, when uh, Purple Hibiscus, my first novel, was published, Judy thinks there were nine people. I do think there were two. And I, I forgot to add that one of them was related to me. <laughs> so. 
So I'm so happy that there are more than two people here today. And, and thank you for coming. I, I, for me, really, the, the most um, meaningful thing about writing fiction is that, is that one is read. So it means very much to me that you're here. I'm going to read a short section from the beginning of the novel. And then I'm going to read a very tiny bit from the middle. And that bit I chose because that's where Baltimore is mentioned. So I thought it would be a good idea to read that. So just reading from the beginning first. Princeton in the summer smelled of nothing. And although Ifemelo liked the tranquil greenness of the many trees, the clean streets and stately homes, the delicately overpriced shops, and the quiet abiding air of earned grace, it was this, the lack of a smell, that most appealed to her. Perhaps because the other American cities she knew well had all smelled distinctly. Philadelphia had the musty scent of history. New Haven smelled of neglect. Baltimore smelled of brine. <laughs> and Brooklyn of sun-warmed garbage. But Princeton had no smell. She liked taking deep breaths here. She liked watching the locals who drove with pointed courtesy and parked their latest model cars outside the organic grocery store on Nassau Street or outside the sushi restaurants, or outside the ice cream shop that had 50 different flavors, including red pepper, or outside the post office where effusive staff bounded out to greet them at the entrance. She liked the campus grave with knowledge, the Gothic buildings with their vine-laced walls, and the way everything transformed in the half-light of night into a ghostly scene. She liked most of all that in this place of affluent ease, she could pretend to be someone else, someone specially admitted into a hallowed American club, someone adorned with certainty. But she did not like that she had to go to Trenton to braid her hair. It was unreasonable to expect a braiding salon in Princeton. The few black locals she had seen were so light-skinned and lank-haired, she could not imagine them wearing braids. And yet, as she waited at Princeton Junction Station for the train, on an afternoon ablaze with heat, she wondered why there was no place where she could braid her hair. The chocolate bar in her handbag had melted. A few other people were waiting on the platform, all of them white and lean, in short, flimsy clothes. The man standing closest to her was eating an ice cream cone. She had always found it a little irresponsible, the eating of ice cream cones by grown-up American men. <laughs> Especially the eating of ice cream cones by grown-up American men in public. He turned to her and said, about time, when the train finally creaked in, with that familiarity that strangers adopt with each other after sharing in the disappointment of a public service. She smiled at him. The graying hair on the back of his head was swept forward, a comical arrangement to disguise his bald spot. He had to be an academic, but not in the humanities, or he would be more self-conscious. <laughs> a firm science like chemistry, maybe. Before, she would have said, I know, that peculiar American expression that professed agreement rather than knowledge. And then she would have started a conversation with him to see if he would say something she could use in her blog. People were flattered to be asked about themselves. And if she said nothing after the spoke, it made them say more. If they asked what she did, she would say vaguely, 
I write a lifestyle blog because saying I write an anonymous blog called Resteenth or Various Observations About American Blacks, those formerly known as Negroes by a non-American black, would make them uncomfortable. She had said it, though, a few times. Once to a dreadlocked white man who sat next to her on the train, his hair like old twine ropes that ended in a blonde fuzz. His tattered shirt worn with enough piety to convince her that he was a social warrior and might make a good guest blogger. Race is totally overhyped these days. Black people need to get over themselves. It's all about class now, the haves and the have-nots he told her evenly, and she used it as the opening sentence of a blog post titled, Not All Dreadlocked White American Guys Are Down. (laughs) Then there was the man from Ohio who was squeezed next to her on a flight, a middle manager, she was sure, from his boxy suit and contrast color. He wanted to know what she meant by lifestyle blog. And she told him, expecting him to become reserved or to end the conversation by saying something defensively bland like, the only race that matters is the human race. But he said, ever write about adoption? Nobody wants black babies in this country. And I don't mean biracial, I mean black. Even the black families don't want them. He told her that he and his wife had adopted a black child and their neighbors looked at them as though they had chosen to become martyrs for a dubious cause. Her blog post about him, titled, Badly Dressed White Middle Managers from Ohio Are Not Always What You Think, had received the highest number of comments for that month. She still wondered if he had read it. She hoped so. Often she would sit in cafes or airports or train stations, watching strangers, imagining their lives, and wondering which of them were likely to have read her blog, now her ex-blog. She had written the final post only days ago, trailed by 274 comments so far. All those readers growing month by month, linking and cross-posting, knowing so much more than she did. They had always frightened and exhilarated her. The ice cream eating man sat beside her on the train, and to discourage conversation, she stared at a brown stain near her feet until they arrived at Trenton. The platform was crowded with black people, many of them fat, in short, flimsy clothes. It still startled her what a difference a few minutes of train travel made. During her first year in America, When she took New Jersey Transit to Penn Station and then the subway to visit Antioju in Flatlands, she was struck by how mostly slim white people got off at the stops in Manhattan, and as the train went further into Brooklyn, the people left were mostly black and fat. She had not thought of them as fat, though. She had thought of them as big, because one of the first things her friend Ginnika told her was that fat in America was a bad word heaving with moral judgment like stupid or bastard, and not a mere description like short or tall. So she had banished fat from her vocabulary. But fat came back to her last winter, after almost 13 years, when a man in line behind her at the supermarket muttered, fat people don't need to be eating that shit, as she paid for her giant bag of Tostitos. She glanced at him, surprised, 
mildly offended, and thought it a perfect blog post how this stranger had decided she was fat. She would file the post under the tag race, gender, and body size. But back home, as she stood and faced the mirror's truth, she realized that she had ignored for too long the new tightness of her clothes, the rubbing together of her inner thighs, the softer, rounder parts of her that shook when she moved. She was fat. She said the word fat slowly, funneling it back and forward, and thought about all the other things she had learned not to say aloud in America. She was not curvy or big-boned. She was fat. It was the only word that felt true. And she had ignored, too, the cement in her soul. Her blog was doing well, with thousands of unique visitors each month, and she was earning good speaking fees, and she had a fellowship at Princeton and a relationship with Blaine, and yet there was cement in her soul. It had been there for a while, an early morning disease of fatigue, a bleakness and borderlessness. It brought with it amorphous longings, shapeless desires, brief imaginary glints of other lives she could be living, that over the months melded into a piercing homesickness. She scoured Nigerian websites, Nigerian profiles on Facebook, Nigerian blogs, and each click brought yet another story of a young person who had recently moved back home. She looked at photographs of these men and women and felt the dull ache of loss, as though they had prized open her hand and taken something of hers. They were living her life. Nigeria became where she was supposed to be, the only place she could sink her roots in without the constant urge to tug them out and shake off the soil. And of course, there was also Obinze, her first love, her first lover, the only person with whom she had never felt the need to explain herself. He was now a husband and father. They had not been in touch in years, yet she could not pretend that he was not a part of her homesickness or that she did not often think of him sifting through their past, looking for portents, of what she could not name. I think I'm going to jump to somewhere in the middle. And so the structure of America now sort of moves back and forward. But uh, so in this bit that I'm going to read, which is the bit about Baltimore, if only I can find it. This is the problem with folding things and then forgetting. Um, yeah, there we go. So this is, uh, so I'm going to read from chapter 20 of the book. And and I, I, I suppose I shouldn't set it up. I'll just read. Maybe the only thing you need to know is that in this section, Ifemelu, who is the the... the, the main narrator and character in this in this novel moves to Baltimore to um, where her, her boyfriend lives. And her boyfriend is Kurt, and he's an American, and he's white. Ifemelu came to love Baltimore for its scrappy charm, its streets of faded glory, its farmer's market that appeared on weekends under the bridge, bursting with green vegetables and plump fruit and virtuous souls. Although never as much as her first love, Philadelphia, that city that held history in its gentle clasp. 
But when she arrived in Baltimore, knowing she was going to live there, not merely visiting Kurt, she thought it forlorn and unlovable. The buildings were joined to one another in faded, slumping rows, and on shabby corners, people were hunched in puffy jackets, black and bleak people waiting for buses, the air around them hazed in gloom. Many of the drivers outside the train station were Ethiopian or Punjabi. Her Ethiopian taxi driver said, I can't place your accent. Where are you from? Nigeria. Nigeria? You don't look African at all. Why don't I look African? Because your blouse is too tight. It is not too tight. I thought you were from Trinidad or one of those places. He was... He was looking in the rear view with disapproval and concern. You know, you have to be very careful or America will corrupt you. When, years later, she wrote the blog post titled On the Divisions Within the Membership of Non-American Blacks in America, she wrote about the taxi driver, but she wrote of it as the experience of someone else careful not to let on whether she was Caribbean or African because her readers did not know which she was. She told Kurt about the taxi driver, how his sincerity had infuriated her and how she had gone to the, to the station bathroom to see if her blouse was too tight. Kurt laughed and laughed. It became one of the many stories he liked to tell friends. She actually went to the bathroom to look at her blouse. His friends were like him, sunny and wealthy people who existed on the glimmering surface of things. She liked them, and she sensed that they liked her. To them, she was interesting, unusual in the way she bluntly spoke her mind. They expected certain things of her and forgave certain things from her because she was foreign. Once, sitting with them in a bar, she heard Kurt talking to Brad, and Kurt said, blow hard. She was struck by the word, by the irredeemable Americanness of it, blow hard. It was a word that would never occur to her. To understand this was to realize that Kurt and his friends would on some level never be fully knowable to her. And I think I will stop there. I don't know how long I've read for. Maybe I'll read a blog post and then I'll stop. Okay. So in this in the novel, Ifemele is a blogger and um and so and she writes this blog which is called Racing or Various Observations about American blacks, who's formerly known as Negroes by a non American black. And in addition to that ridiculous title, she also has ridiculous titles for the actual blog posts. And um so I guess I'll I'll find one of the blog posts and read them. There's one about Michelle Obama on whom I have a huge crush, so uh, if I can find that, I'd like to read that. That's a shame. Okay. Um, So this uh, this blog post is titled, A Michelle Obama Shoutout Plus Hair as Race Metaphor. White girlfriend and I are Michelle Obama groupies. So the other day I said to her, I wonder if Michelle Obama has a weave 
Her hair looks fuller today and all that heat every day must damage it. And white girlfriend says, you mean her hair doesn't grow like that? <laughs> so is it me or is that the perfect metaphor for race in America right there? Hair. Do you ever notice makeover shows on TV how the black woman has natural hair, coarse, coily, kinky, or curly, in the ugly before picture? And in the pretty after picture, somebody's taken a hot piece of metal and singed her hair straight. Some black women, American black and non-American black, would rather run naked in the street than come out in public with their natural hair. <laughs> because you see it's not professional sophisticated whatever it's just not damn normal now please commenters don't tell me it's the same thing as a white woman who doesn't color her hair when you do have natural negro hair people think you did something to your hair actually the folk with the afros and dreads are the ones who haven't done anything to their hair you should be asking beyonce what she's done We all love B, but how about she show us just once what her hair looks like when it grows from her scalp? <laughs> now, I have natural kinky hair, worn in cornrows, afros, braids, and no, it's not political. No, I am not an artist or a poet or a singer. I am not an earth mother either. <laughs> I just don't want relaxers in my hair. There are enough sources of cancer in my life as it is. By the way, can we ban Afro wigs at Halloween? <laughs> Afro is not costume, for God's sake. Now, imagine if Michelle Obama got tired of all the heat and decided to go natural and appeared on TV with lots of woolly hair or tight, spirally curls. Now, there is no knowing what her texture will be. It is not unusual for a black woman to have three different textures on her head. Michelle Obama would totally rock. But poor Barack Obama <laughs> would certainly lose the independent vote. <laughs> Even the undecided Democrat vote. I'm going to end there. Thank you for listening. <laughs>
the the drama and the humor in your life and how it works out that you are that you've become who you are. Huh. <laughs> so so maybe could I rephrase it to what has America done for you? <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> I think, but you know, I've lived in the U.S. off and on for uh, almost 15 years, and so I think it, it has to have had some influence on me. But because I'm very wary of, of self psychoanalyzing, um, I I I don't know really. I do think though that I recognize certain things when when it's reflected back to me. For example, when I'm in Nigeria and I complain about people smoking in public places, my friends shake their head and say, "Oh God, how American!" <laughs> or when I or when I uh, when I go to a restaurant and I I, I ask for fresh uh, vegetables, or I say I want my vegetables steamed with no salt, just steamed, and, and they look at me very strangely because you know we cook our vegetables with spices and oil, and then they say this is what America has done to you. So that sort of thing. I, I don't know. If anything, I think that uh, having lived in the U.S., having left home, really, but I suppose also having come to America specifically, because I think it might have been different if I had gone to the U.K., which, which is a place that, for obvious historical reasons, is more familiar to me. So I think that having come to the U.S., it gave me a chance to look at Nigeria with new eyes, to see Nigeria differently, and in some ways to take on identities that I would never have taken on in Nigeria. I feel grateful to have come here because it made me grow up in many ways. Um, and I say that because if I'd stayed on in Nigeria and being the product of, a, you know, sort of a, a certain kind of privilege, certain kind of middle class life, that, that there are many of my contemporaries who never had to push back at life and so never really learned how to. But coming here, there's a kind of the do-it-yourselfness of America I think it was very good for me. I didn't think so at the time when I, when I was having a hard time as an undergraduate, but now I'm very grateful for it. But also just taking on all of these identities, I, I realize that only in America do I think of myself really as black. That's, that's sort of one of the major um, things about the U.S. When, I, when I'm in Europe, I don't really... And again, because Europe is not that familiar, I don't really... I'm just, I'm just Nigerian in that space. When I'm in Nigeria, I never think about race. There's so many other things to think about. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but here in the U.S., it's interesting to me because that that you know my 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 plane lands in you know New York or in Atlanta or wherever, and I'm immediately aware that I'm black, and I'm immediately aware walking to the airport. I'm immediately aware of how many black people are in the line. You know, so there's a sense in which sort of a, a race, a, a racial identity is something that one adopts in America, at least for me, because I'm not an American. I, I, I'm. I'm I'm guessing that the experience of, a, of an African-American might be different, that maybe race is something an African-American might carry everywhere in the world, but, but certainly not for me. America, America taught me that. And it's, and it's an identity that I used to feel very ambivalent about, um, but I completely embrace now. I mean, I, I like to say I'm very happily black. I wasn't always, and this is one of the reasons I wanted to write this book, because I think that... Um, and I loved what she said in the introduction about, I, I wanted a book that takes us where we, we're not always comfortable going, because I think it's important to talk about those things. And not just race in America, but the permutations of blackness, that there's, there's, there's what I like to call the non-American black and the American black, and, and how 
how how their differences and how often all of these things are shrouded in so much silence. But but they're very much a part of people's lives. And um, so it's one of the reasons that I wanted to write this book. And one of the things I hoped would happen with this book was that these conversations would start. But um, I should also say that what I particularly love about America is that the internet is very fast. <laughs> In Nigeria, it's just a bit slower. I'd like to comment on your comment about the first not being aware of your blackness when you were in Nigeria. I had the good uh, fortune of traveling to Ghana for about 13 days back in 2010 with a group of young African-American males who were taken there to be a part of their cultural and educational education. And it wasn't until, I think I was back in the States um, maybe four or five days before I realized that for the first time in 13 days, I consider myself. I was. I thought of myself as black, but I never did the entire time I was in. I was in Ghana. Just not was not something that was on that 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 came up. So I find it um, intriguing that mm -hmm. you would make that statement coming mm -hmm. from Nigeria, not having mm -hmm. been here. On your second point, uh, yes, race is very much. It's not a choice that we have. Mm -hmm. It's very much a part of, of of who we are. It informs what we do. It informs our opinions. It informs our reactions to certain things that happen to us. Uh, us, I'm talking about African-Americans, uh, in, in public. I'll give you one very brief anecdote. I'm a teacher. I teach math in Howard County in Maryland. I taught summer school this summer for just three weeks. And um, as is my habit, I send notes home to parents by way of email to tell them how their children are doing. <clears throat> Excuse me. Anyway, one of the parents decided that she wanted to ask me if I would tutor her son during the school year. He's not a public school student. He's a private school student. And I agreed to do so. Uh, then, uh, on the last day of school, uh, the parents came to pick their children up a little early, and uh, I took it upon myself to go meet her. And as I was walking the hall, I was saying, this might be a mistake. She might change her mind when she sees that the teacher her son is so enamored with is not a white man. Uh, and and I, this, is, you know, this is something we carry around with all the time. It's just unconscious. And so I did. I introduced myself. And so if you're supposed to get back in touch with me in a couple of weeks, but she had not done. So now I guess what I'm thinking. She saw me, she's now changed her mind. She doesn't want me to teach her kid. But it turns out that I was wrong. I heard from her yesterday. <laughs> I think that's, <laughs> I, think, I, I love that story because I think it says so much about, uh, one of the, what I find particularly interesting about having adopted this new identity is that in America, race is always an option as a reason for something. I think, and I think that's one of the, that's what I think is terrible about a society that's based on, on race, really. And I think the US is, I mean, I think America's history is steeped in race, and I think its presence still is very much. I mean, the idea that, that it's always an option. So this woman doesn't call you, it's always an option for you to think, all oh, right, it's, it's, you know, she's seen a black man, which is something that people who are not people of color don't have to think about, which is also something that if I were in Nigeria, and this is why I say that not thinking about blackness can be such a relief, because if I were in Nigeria and that happened to me, I would be thinking, this woman is just silly, or she doesn't like me in particular, not because I'm a certain color, but she just didn't like me, the individual, which is just easier to deal with, I think, than sort of thinking that um, somebody has these ideas about a group of people to which you belong and then they apply it to you. And it, it, it's, yeah, but um, I'm glad she did call. 
Yes. 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 Yeah. 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 And I also think that it, for for me, and sort of what I, I like to call a non-American black, it, it's something that we that I had to learn. In other words, when I came to the U.S., there was so much I didn't understand about race. I, I didn't have the context. And I think this is probably true for many other immigrants, black immigrants who come to the U.S. Not only do we not have a context, we don't know very much about African-American history, and um, which is why, you know, if I, if, I, if I were a dictator, and sometimes I, I wish I were actually, but one of the things I would do is make everybody who's, who comes to the US as an immigrant take a, a course in African-American history. And the reason I think this is important is that it's important for understanding America's present. And when I came to the US, I didn't have that context. And I very quickly absorbed a lot of negative stereotypes. I think part of also wanting to succeed as an immigrant is that you're quite, you're quite willing to absorb whatever it is that it takes to succeed. So if it means believing, oh, you know, African Americans are all lazy and and all, you know, commit all the crimes and you absorb them because that's what mainstream society tells you. And if that's your path to your own idea of success, then you do it. And I see this very much in in um, non-American black circles. And and I think part it's mostly from just not knowing, not having a context. I think had I not then started really had I not discovered James Baldwin. And I, I think I I James Baldwin is, I think, one of the greatest writers that the world has produced, really. And discovering him was so meaningful to me because it made me, it gave me context and it sort of opened the world to, to asking more questions and to reading a lot more. But I realized that it's not the norm. I, you know, I, I, and so I suppose this is my way of saying that I understand that. I get it. I know I, the things that I get, but I realize that there are many people like me who've come from Nigeria, from other parts of Africa, even from the Caribbean, who don't get it, who don't understand that because they don't have a context. Good evening, Chairman. My name is Valentine. Um, I want to say I'm a huge fan of yours. Um, read all your books. And I want to say, as a non-American <laughs> black immigrant, <laughs> Um, I had my aha moments on every page of the Americana. I mean, sometimes I'm at work and I scream out. And people are like, what is wrong with you? But thank you for that. Thank you. Um, I have a kind of a two-part question uh, in term referring to the book. Having a discussion, a book discussion about Americana, most of the women who were in my group called Ifemelu flawed um, in... I want to be careful about how I choose my words now. No, don't be, don't be. Okay. Um, the African woman is supposed to be virtuous, quote unquote. And, right. Um, Ifemelu was very, um, she found it very easy to go from one guy to another. I'm not, you know, I'm not judging. Um, <laughs> but. You know, the women in my reading group did make that observation. I wanted to see what you thought about that. And um, my other part question is, is this the end of Obinzi and Ifemelu, or we're going to see more? <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking about part two. And um, I'm actually thinking, having been deeply inspired by Nollywood, I'm thinking about part two, three, four, five, and six. So... <laughs> So I'm working on it. But but I have a question. So the women, were they Africans? They were non-American blacks. They were non-American blacks. 
although I suspect that even American black women would probably have the same. You know, I, I've heard that from readers. I find it very interesting, but not surprising. Um, there are many things I feel strongly about, one of which is, is gender. I call myself a very happy feminist. I'm infuriated by how we suppress the sexuality of females in the name of culture and how we, um, you know, we teach girls that they can't be sexual beings, never mind that they are. So really, by teaching them that they can't be, what we're teaching them is we're teaching them to pretend. And I know many, many women who, who, who say something in public but in private say something else. And... And I think, and because this is particularly, what I find most interesting is if Ife Miller had done everything she did and just happened to have a different sexual organ, I think the judgment on Ife Miller would be very different. If Ife Miller had been male and she destroys, so she has two boyfriends who are perfectly good, um, the relationships are healthy, they're, they're, good for, they're good to her, I don't know about for her, but they're good to her, and she de destroys the relationships, right, willfully, she destroys them. Because she's human and she's flawed, as all of us are. But if Ifemela had been a man, would be like, yeah, you know, that happens. But she's a woman, we're like, she's unvirtuous and she's... And, <laughs> so, I mean, what I say to that is, hey, she's, she's, she's human. I, I want us to live in a world where women are allowed to be as flawed as men. And, where, and also, it's interesting to me when we keep saying flawed as though we need to state the obvious. We are all flawed. That's what it means to be human. So whenever people say that, they say, I'm not judging, but she's flawed. I'm thinking, yeah, but you are. By the way, I don't think it's wrong to judge. I think we should all judge. The question is to make the right judgments, really. <laughs> I, mean, I think this is the other thing about, about the U.S. Um, you know, this idea that people say, oh, I'm not judging, but you actually are, but you're supposed to say that you're not. <laughs> because, but anyway. So no, I, I quite like Ife Melo. Um, but, I, but I also understand when people have that reaction. And I think, it's, I think it says a lot about gender. And yeah. But I'm, I'm very happy that she's the flawed person that she is. Hi. Hello. I, re I really enjoyed the book. It's, um, you mentioned James Baldwin, and like Baldwin, you're writing, it's almost like each sentence is a, like a new package in a way. You really want to stick with it. So thank, thank you. Thank you. That's very kind. Thank you very much. <laughs> I, I guess my question sort of nebulous in two part. I love music. I love Fela Kuti. Mm. I love the production they had it at Morgan, Fela. I know you mentioned uh, music. So my first question is sort of a little bit about the music scene in Nigeria today. Does Fela live on still? Uh, what, what kind of sort of for a little description? I have only in 30 pages in the book, so you may talk about it in the book. So, and I guess the second question is: I read a book. I want to say it's called Water. It was actually an audio book about the oil, the oil industry in Nigeria, and a reporter. I'm not. It's by a Nigerian writer, and very, very. Uh, solemn sort of look at Nigeria. And I'm just curious about Nigeria, its future, its independence. They have potential to be a leader in Africa. What's your feeling on that, if you want to speak about that? Thank you very much. Thanks. Do we have time for a lecture? <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just get my lecture notes if we have time. No. <laughs> um, well, the second part, what do I think Nigeria has? Yes, but I should also say that I'm Nigerian. And part of being Nigerian is to have this ridiculous sense of self. You know, we're, we're just incredibly confident, even though we have really no reason to be when you think about it. So we think that, of course, we're the leaders in Africa. Niger um, 
South Africa likes to pretend to be kind of the major economy, but actually figures show that it isn't. Um, that if you think about if you think about if you think about population and uh, and and the growing middle class, Nigeria actually is going to surpass South Africa. You know, with all of those sort of fancy economic indices that people use, even though you don't entirely understand them. But Nigeria is supposed to surpass South Africa in in 25 years. I'm generally optimistic about my country. I love Nigeria, so I suppose I don't have a choice but to be optimistic, because that's my home in many ways. Um, Nigeria is a very dynamic place, and it's a it's a much better place than it was 20 years ago. And 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 change is incremental and I, i i feel as though we take three steps forward and one back but in general yes i think that um i think that nigeria is heading in the right direction there are problems of course but but you know just little things like now there's a growing awareness among people about what to expect from their leaders for example and that the and that we have leaders now who gesture toward um, a certain kind of accountability. Now, whether or not they're really accountable is questionable, but the gesture toward it in a way that they didn't 20 years ago. And for me, that's progress. And about music, um, I'm actually quite illiterate when it comes to music. And, and generally, I find music to be noise. Um, this is probably not a very popular position to take. But you know, I have friends who have to listen to music when they're writing. And I think, my lord, I couldn't even focus if there's music. I need silence. I love silence. But um, Fela was important to me because he was Fela. And I think I know all of his songs. Maybe we should sing some. <laughs> um, shall we sing some? <laughs> lady, oh lady, 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 no. So, but. Fela lives on. Fela lives on. Fela, Fela, Fela is one of those. Fela is iconic. Fela really is sort of. I think he's he's become more than a musician and has become this, really this icon that that cuts across region and class and age in Nigeria. Fela is easy to love, and people love him. And um, his son, I think his, his son Shane Kuti's music is is kind of like his father's. Femi Kuti's isn't really. But but both are musicians who have who have followings, Sheung and Femi um, Kuti in Nigeria. There there is all, however, something I'm very excited about, which is this growing kind of popular indigenous popular music um, industry in Nigeria. And I hear from people who go to clubs that Nigerian music mostly is played in clubs these days, which was not the case 20 years ago. And We have homegrown celebrities who are musicians, all of which I find very exciting. And I find it exciting because I think it's a mark of, of a confident and growing place when people are consuming what they produce. And so we're, we're increasingly culturally consuming what we produce. And, and I think it's fantastic. So the, the number of these young musicians who I love, they, but they, it's interesting, many of them are, some of them are kind of Jay-Z light, right? Um, So sort of Jay-Z light with a sprinkling of Nigerianisms. And then there are some that that have their own really individual styles. One that I would recommend, a Nigerian musician whose whose work I love, is Flavor. Uh, he's called Flavor. Very unlikely name, but he's actually really very good, I think. And um, and there's a woman called Omar Wumi who's also really good. Uh, but then they're just... it's Also, it's wonderfully diverse. I, I don't know that there's... 
And this is a question I think I get all the time outside Nigeria about who's taking over from Fela. And I don't know that anybody is, but I don't know that anybody should. I think that there's this growing, wonderfully diverse sort of generation of musicians and and it's all very exciting. So flavor or mawumi, I would recommend. Hi. Hi. <laughs> I just wanted to thank you for, for being here. And also, I just want to say that you and your work are very beautiful. I love the language and the word selection of Americana. Thank uh, you. I read a, an article about you in the, in the Baltimore new newspaper, The Sun. And I'm a writer. And I just I had a question about the creative process. Like, do you mm. have any advice for preparing to, um, to, um, to, to do a book? Or, or just how does one prepare for a creative work like you know, I don't know that there is a way to prepare. I think it's really that you just have to write. And I think lots of people are interested in writing and talk about how they don't have the time, they don't. And maybe, I think maybe the most important thing is to make, make the time, to make it happen. And I also think, and I speak from experience, in other words, it's different for different people, but that for me, writing is very different from publishing. Writing is the thing that makes me happy. It's the thing that I need to do. And publishing is something that I'm fortunate to have had happened to me. But So in other words, if I hadn't been published, if I hadn't had the good fortune to be published and to be read, I would still be writing somewhere. You know, I just wouldn't be here talking to a room full of people, which I'm happy to do, but I really I would still be writing. And I think that's important because why one wants to write is important as well. And um, so I suppose it's two things, to write and to read. I also have... I've talked to many young people who want to write, who, who I don't think read enough. I think it's important to know what you like and what you don't like. It's important to read as widely as you can and just to see what's out there. And you know, in other words, there are no rules, but it's important to know the rules, not, not to follow them, just to know that they're there. And, and so you know, it's good to read the classics and to know, for example, that some of them are incredibly boring and that some of them are actually very good. And um, so I think reading is very important. I think making the time to write is very important. When I was writing my first novel, Purple Hibiscus, this is the novel of the two people fame here, I was in, um, I was in college, I was, uh, I was a senior in college, and I was also working as my sister's unpaid housekeeper <laughs> and unpaid babysitter. And I had schoolwork to do, so I was, you know, I was actually quite busy, but I always made the time. So I remember I would sort of put my nephew to bed and write until one in the morning or two in the morning and then go to school at eight in the morning. And I made that happen every day. And I think it could have been very easy for me to say, oh, I don't have the time, but I needed to write because writing was what gave, and I don't want to sound precious, but really writing was what gave meaning to my life. So that's what I did, and it, it mattered. And if it meant that I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't feel that I was missing out if I didn't go hang out or whatever, because I didn't want to. I wanted to write. So I think that's important as well, to, to make the time for it, to, to honor the, the, the space and time that you devote to writing. So I, I don't know that there are any magic formulas, and I also think that, that good work will find its audience. I really believe that. And so I don't think that one should spend too much time trying to find the tricks or, you know, sort of going somewhere so you can bump into an editor in the store. You know, I, I really, <laughs> I just think that, that sort of being true to your art and doing the best that you can and then sort of, you know, doing the publishing bit after that is, is what's most important. That's, that, that's what I did at least. Yeah. So just keep writing. <laughs> yeah. Good evening. Hello. 
What is your perception of pseudo-African cultures or African subcultures found in America? So it sounds like the <laughs> sounds like the title of a thesis. <laughs> um, pseudo-African cultures. I don't even know what that means, though. Um, <laughs> I really don't know what it means, and so I don't know that I can answer. And, and I'm also a little uncomfortable about the idea of sort of labeling something as pseudo-African culture, because I'm always worried when we sort of start to talk about what is authentic and what is not about culture, because it just very quickly becomes this slippery slope of, of ridiculousness, in my opinion. So that th there are people who, I, I know, for example, that, that here in the US, oh, a woman, I met a woman who was telling me about a community in maybe the state of, in Georgia, maybe, that is in, she was sort of old, founded by slaves who had escaped, and they, they really try to hold on to, so it's kind of a, a no, not, not the, not, I don't, is it South Carolina? What is it called? Something like Oyo? No, not Gala. No, not Gala. No. Something else. Oyo, I think she said it was called. But she said that apparently in some ways like, um, like Brazil, like, like some, some areas around Bahia in Brazil where you know, some Yoruba traditions have survived, she said that, that apparently this place, and I think it was Georgia, she said. So I wrote it down. I meant to look it up. That they had tried to preserve some of the, the traditions of um, the Africans who had, had set it up you know, 200 years ago, 300 years ago. And, and I'm sure that a Yoruba person from Nigeria going there would find it a little strange, but I don't know that it means that we can label it pseudo-African. I think it's its own thing. I, yeah. I, I mean, I feel like I'm starting to sound like somebody who goes to a Unitarian church. Everything is good. But really, I believe that. I, I just believe that. I believe that there isn't such a thing as a pseudo-anything <laughs> pseudo culture. Culture is culture. There are different kinds. Yes. Oh, sorry. There's actually a line. <laughs> hi. <laughs> um, uh, hi, my name is Afifa Abdurrahman, and um, I'm, I guess you could say, a Baltimorean. Um, um, I've been here, or I've lived here for about 20 years, and recently, well, over the last 10 years, I've spent a lot of time overseas and on the continent. Um, and I'm going to use one of the words in the book that was kind of laughed at was excited. Americans are always excited, but I was very excited to hear that you were coming here today. <laughs> um, I have basically a, maybe a two-part question, or two different questions, actually. One dealing with hair and natural hair in the African diaspora, and one dealing with the interrelation or the relationship between African-Americans and American-Africans, if we can call um, them that. So in terms of the first question, um, so like I said, I w I've spent about um, the last seven years a lot of time in Ethiopia working in gender and public health. Mm. And one of the things that people in Addis try to do is, you know, create their own fun and enjoyment because there's there's a lacking, uh, there's a bit of a lack of, you know, certain types of enjoyment for people who are expats. Um, and one of the things that a number <laughs> sorry, of us... Sorry, sorry. I'm sorry. I can't help being amused by that. That's, um, so that's, very, that's diplomatic speak. I, I don't know, even know I what know, that know, means. Do you mean like there are no bars, so, no clubs? I mean, what does it mean? Certain types of in, in, entertainment, meaning like... How do I put this? Well, what we did was we started a hair group, if you could say mm -hmm. that, because um, for a majority of... Um, 
Ethiopian women in Addis who were at our, you know, who either were expats themselves or diaspora coming back. Um, a lot of the sort of hair salons we couldn't attend, we couldn't go to because of the hair texture and all of that. So we decided, you know, what are we, we, we want to be natural, but um, how do we support each other in Addis? Mm. So mm. that's what I mean, like certain mm. things like that. Mm. Um, there, there's tons of types of different types of entertainment in Addis, but so, something like that is hard to come by. So in this hair group, there were Nigerians, there were you, you know, Ugandans, Kenyans, um, African American, and so my experience from this hair group was one, it showed me how much, how the difference in the conversations across the pond, across the, the Atlantic, when it comes to natural hair, when it comes to natural hair in discussions in the U.S., in certain, in certain communities in the U.S., as well as um, conversations overseas. And I just wanted to know if you could talk a bit about that and maybe um, touch on what, what, it, what um, impact being in the U.S. had on you being natural and what impact being in Nigeria has, had, had, you know, had on being natural. So that's the first question. The second question is, <laughs> sorry, it's not that long of a question. I believe this I, I just, woman has I, really spent time in, in Africa. <laughs> this is the African way of asking questions. <laughs> so, so my second question, it won't be as long. Um, I'm African-American and again, spending a lot of time in Ethiopia around other uh, non-Ethiopian Africans. I experienced something that I don't think I ever would have gotten staying in Baltimore, and that is the hostility and the condescension and the sort of patting on the head that non, well, maybe, you know, Ethiopian Africans, but definitely non-Ethiopian Africans seem to have for African Americans. And, you know, I, I look at that and I think, okay, if I think of the other side, growing up in Baltimore, what was the impression of of African Americans, when it comes to them and understanding, you know, different different Africans, if there was even an understanding in, in certain was communities, there? in certain communities, no, in certain, yes. So, so my question is, what? How do we bridge that divide? Like, how do we? How, what do you think is an answer? Maybe not the answer, but an answer to bridging that divide, um, and <sighs> making sure that, because when I read, when I've, I've gone through about half of the book, and I've I've actually identified with a lot of what she has gone through, you know, um, just being myself and thinking of that, like, how do we bridge that divide? So, sorry for the long questions. <laughs> I wish I knew. This is the great um, thorn in my flesh, how to bridge. I really don't know. It's something that, but, but I, I do think it's, I think it's complex. I, I think that, I don't even remember what the first part of the question was. Oh, about hair. Okay, so really, really quickly. So I kind of got carried away with the question I didn't remember. But just really quickly, I, I think that I probably, if I had not left Nigeria to come to school in the U.S., I think today I would have um, a head full of long, silky Brazilian hair going all the way down to my butt. <laughs> I really think so. But I don't know. Who knows, right? So this is sort of... <laughs> This is the metafictional account of my, the life I didn't have. But that's what I think. Coming to the U.S., a number of things happened, one of which simply was, and I should say that my, my going natural, which happened many years ago, long before it was cool, 
wasn't so much because I was come in touch with my my you know my my spiritual soul. It was simply that I could no longer afford to go to a hair salon and I had done the relaxing myself and it was a disaster and I just and I remember when that happened and I had I had hurt you know I, my scalp was burning and I just remember saying to myself why am I doing this right why so in other words thinking what's the other option what's the other alternative rather than sort of constantly having to think about putting things in my hair and then I wash it off and then there's a burn and then half half of it didn't take and then the other half took and it's so I stopped, and what I did then was to braid my hair constantly with attachments, and um, and then it was sort of this journey where one day I just woke up and I thought I really like my hair the way it grows from my scalp, but it was a discovery, and and it's strange because it shouldn't be, but I think this is true for many black women that um, it became this thing where I thought oh my hair can do that, you know oh my hair actually isn't this hard unmanageable, terrible thing that I had grown up thinking that it was. When I go back to Nigeria now the there are the, a few women with natural hair, but there's a joke about how they're all returnees. Right? So they're all people who, so we sort of, and I joke about this with my friends who, um, who don't have natural hair, who haven't left Nigeria, and they say to me things like, oh, I saw this woman, your fellow returnee with natural hair. And, and hair salons have no idea what to do with natural hair. Actually, hair salons have no idea what to do with hair. <laughs> no, this is true. They know what to do with plastic, otherwise known as weaves, but they don't know what to do with hair. And so in a Nigerian hair salon, they really don't care for your hair, whether natural or relaxed. They don't, but they know what to do with the weaves. Um, and here's a true story. Once at a hair salon, I heard this woman saying to the hairdresser, she said, you can cut my hair, but don't cut my fumi hair. Fumi hair is the weave. So she says to the woman doing her hair, you can actually cut my real hair while you're taking it out, but don't destroy the weave. <laughs> so I guess it says something about what's valued. Um, and, and I do think that I, it's very it was very exciting for me a few years ago to discover that there is this growing natural hair movement in the U.S. And, and it gave me, and I think there's a wonderful feeling of not wanting to be alone somewhere. And so, so I'm a keen watcher of natural hair and videos on YouTube, for example. That is actually why it took me six years to finish my novel. <laughs> I spent most of that time on YouTube. But... Um, <laughs> But yeah, so the second part of the question, I think it's, it, I think it's complicated that, that there, I think that it's, 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 it's also nuance. There's hostility, but there's also, I think that there's a, a that there's, there's a mutuality as well between Africans and African Americans. And I think often it depends on context. I think context really matters. So I know, for example, that an African American in Nigeria would, would be, would be admired, would be, um, so there's a kind of that 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 black culture is something Nigerians um, admire, and my sister, for example, who's who's very beautiful, very stylish, incredibly vain. Uh, her, one of her the best ways to compliment you is to say, ah, you just look like a black American. <laughs> that's that's for her the height of complimenting. On the other hand, I think Nigerians who, particularly when they've lived in the U.S. And again, I think it goes back to what I said earlier about having absorbed all of these stereotypes. So sometimes you're in gatherings of Nigerians and it really sounds like you're in Alabama in 1960. Um, but then I think also on the other hand that, that not only is it that there's a lack of understanding and context of what African-Americanness is in the, in the black community that's not African-American, but also I think there's a, there's a lack of understanding of what Africanness is in the African-American community. I think that I, for example, have been, and I suppose I should, but I, in some ways I was particularly surprised to 
South African Americans look at me in surprise that you can speak English, you have cars in your country, you have houses, that sort of nonsense. Um, because somehow I felt that you're black, you should know that I haven't come from the jungle, but apparently they didn't. And, and I have an African American friend who said to me once that growing up, to be told, you look African, was an insult. So I think, I think it's, it's something where the answer for me is that we just need to know more about one another's histories. I, I think that's very important because then we, both, we have context. And also one another's present. I, I think I wish that there was more of a sort of traveling and that more African Americans went to the continent of Africa. And not just Egypt, by the way. Sorry. <laughs> So we have um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven people here. So I'm going to ask you all to keep your questions really short, okay? Well, that's unfair, but. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just like to um, uh, state a couple of things first before my question. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not sure if you know, but but um, uh, some of us who have been, I'm an octogenarian, so some of us who've been on Earth for a long time know that uh, a few years back, uh, Africa was a, a place, not a group of, of nations, right? And, and so, you know, you say you're from Africa, that means you're from South Africa all the way up to the Mediterranean. Well, uh, fortunately, we've, we've come uh, away from that. But my, one of my daughters visited Senegal, and uh, she's been there two or three times. And each time, <clears throat> she was, um, I don't know about impressed, but uh, observed that the French men there uh, really went after uh, the Senegalese women, and vice versa, the Senegalese women went after the French men, and there seemed to be a desire for this, this commingling thing here. Well, uh, here in the United States, uh, we have uh, African-Americans who um, some time ago, and I, I hope we have evolved, um, wanted to be more European in what we did. Uh, and, and fortunately, we, we've grown to like the way we look. But that was, was the thing. And um, just one, one more before the question. Uh, my, my wife is from Oklahoma. I'm from the West Coast, Los Angeles, and I never will forget that after we had met for a while, she said, you are some kind of Negro. She had never met a person like me from the West Coast. And I'm wondering if you, in your observations, have um, developed a stereotype similar to the stereotype that we did of everybody coming from Africa, okay, looks one way, um, of black Americans here, <clears throat> or if you are evolving in your understanding and your mm, appreciation, whatever, of the diversity within the uh, African-American communities. 
That's my question. Uh, thank you, sir, for your question. I, I can't speak about Senegal. By the way, my father is 81, so I feel a great fondness for you, even though I don't know you. Um, I, I can't speak about Senegal, and <laughs> because really, Francophone Africa is just a different thing from Anglophone Africa, and uh, I, and so about the Senegalese and the French, there's just I I really I find it fascinating. The the you know Francophone Africa is very interesting to me, and and very different from Anglophone Africa. Actually, increasingly, I, I'm I'm thinking that Nigeria in general is just different. And I don't mean this in a, <laughs> that this is necessarily a good thing, but Nigeria is different. Nigeria, uh, Nigerians don't seem to have quite as many colonial hang-ups as the rest of the continent. And I say this having been to a, a number of countries on the continent of Africa, and there's just a kind of, um, of, of a, a, a kind of an aggressive self-confidence that Nigerians have that I just don't see in, in any other um, country that I've been to, and I've been to maybe you know, quite a few. And Francophone Africa is particularly interesting because there seems to be, an in still today, so many years after colonialism, an incredible focus on France. France is still very much this venerated thing in a way that, that England certainly isn't in, in Anglophone Africa. And I, you know, I don't think Portugal certainly isn't in, in, in Lusophone Africa. But France in Francophone Africa just seems to me people constantly, you know, you talk to middle class um, Francophone Africans, and there's always Paris, Paris in the conversations. It's France is still very much the shining emblem for them, and and it puzzles me. So I don't entirely understand it. So I really couldn't. Um, but also Senegal is a lovely place, and and the women are beautiful. So it's not that surprising that the Frenchmen. Uh, I mean, um, the second part. Yes, I'm happy to announce that I have in fact evolved, and I have a, an understanding of the great great diversity in the African American community. I know that there are many kinds of Negroes. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Hi, how are you? I'm very well. I am a non-American black immigrant from the Caribbean via Canada, but I am excited, very excited, actually. <laughs> very excited to be here and to meet you. Um, I'm also a writer. And uh, I, I do have, I just wrote my first book, first book of poetry, where I touch on my experiences from the Caribbean to Canada to the U.S. I've been here 13 years. And I think one of the challenges for me as a writer in writing this book is that I write as a woman. And yes, I know I'm black and I'm very proud of being black. But what, when I've shared with some of my African-American friends, they're saying, well, you're not writing black enough. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the challenges I face as a non-African American is I'm very proud of being black. I've learned African American history and culture. I understand it. I embrace it. But I don't always think of myself first as a black woman. I think of myself as a woman. And so maybe in some of my writing, I'm not coming across as black as I should to some. So I just wonder if you ever face some of that when you're writing? I, you know, when, I, when I'm sitting in my study trying to write, it's really, it's a very, very small space. And it's a space that is occupied by me alone. So by which I mean, and I understand what you're saying, and I think it's a story, I have similar stories about, but it's, it's people can't define for you what you have to be. 
I think that's that's very important for somebody who's creative. You have to. You have to. You, I mean, when they say you're not writing black enough, well, black enough as defined by whom? And you know, and and as the dear gentleman at the end said, there's this vast diversity of of African Americanness. So which which are we talking about? Um, you know, also didn't didn't people say Barack Obama wasn't black enough, right? Um, you know, the people who would say that Prince isn't black enough, right? The musician. I mean, did he change? I think he changed his name back to Prince. So I mean, I, I maybe people have these reactions, but but for me, writing has to be intensely true and intensely true for you, so that when I'm walking on my book, I'm really not thinking about audience or somebody's going to say it's not good enough for them or somebody's going to say I didn't represent them well because they will say it anyway. And and I think what matters is that you that that that. The, the truth you bring to the text, if that makes sense. It's your truth. And, and as a reader, I can tell when somebody's trying to pander to something. I can tell when there's passion. I can tell when there's truth in something that I'm reading. And I think that's all that matters. And so if people are saying to you, it's not black enough, it's really their problem, not yours. And I think that for you, what you should think about is how do I make this sentence the best sentence that it can be? How do I tell the truth that I want to tell? That's really, that's really all that matters. And you know, something else that I've learned, and I, and I say this not trying to sort of sound old, but really, I mean, seeing as there's been 10 years of writing for me and publishing, really, not writing, but publishing, is that I started off trying to think that I could please everyone. And now I've learned not only that I cannot please everyone, but I shouldn't even try, because it mars your work. So really, I would say, and you know, you're a woman, you're black, you, I'm sure you're many other things, right? And those things will come, will, will come out in your work. And, and you might think that you're not writing black enough, but I, for example, might read your work and say, this is a, a nuanced, subtle exploration of a particular kind of blackness. <laughs> Hello. Hi. Um, to premise my question, um, I am an American, but uh, my parents are Nigerian. And my cousins and I, sometimes we feel that we face this double consciousness because we're American, but our parents raised us as Nigerians with the same values, values and morals, and we eat good at home, <laughs> good Nigerian food. And um, What's your name? My name is Isioma. But sorry, I was just I was going to play one of those, you know, Igbo so, aunties who are like, why don't you understand Igbo? <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, go on. So you know, when we're with our American friends, we use our American name, and when we're at home, we answer with our Nigerian name. And so I wonder if you know, with this double consciousness that we face, if you ran into people like us to um help you with your creative process in creating your protagonist. Because when I heard the passage as I came in just before the Michelle Obama blog, it struck a nerve in me. So, um, I think I think what's different, though, is that um, in, in the novel, Ifemelo isn't what I, I... I'd be curious, so you... Isn't what I... Because I would... I, I don't know how you self-identify, and I'd be curious to know, but I know people whose parents came from Nigeria, from Ghana, from Kenya and who were born and grew up here, who call themselves American Africans rather than African Americans. Um, 
And so I think that what's different in this novel is that Ifemel is not an American African. She's an African who lives in America. That, that, that's another difference, right? So, so in many ways, her experiences parallel more closely my own experience, much more than, for example, my nephew, who's an American African, because my nephew was born in the U.S. He's been raised here. He's 20 years old. He and and many in many ways like you, I find that he he very easily code switches. So when he's with his friends, he's very much his American self, and back home, he's very much his Nigerian self and you know the idea of double consciousness can sound very heavy I don't know that it's necessarily a bad thing to I think it can in fact be that you have the good fortune of inhabiting two walls and that and that it, it can in fact if, if nothing sort of broaden your your sense of self and 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 I think also gives you tools to navigate the world in a way that you you might not have. I think that my nephew for example that there's something about the the way in which he can survive in different spaces that I think comes from, you know, he goes back to Nigeria for Christmas one year, the next year he's here in the U.S., and it's, it's, it's different. And I think, you know, I, but again, I don't know because it's not my experience. And, um, but I, I find it very interesting that you said, I'm an American, but my parents are Nigerian. And I'm sure that if you said that in a gathering of your parents' friends, they'd be like, yeah? But also, I have to confess that in some ways, I think there's a part of me that's very much that auntie that you have, where I'm thinking, Isiyama, why don't you understand Igbo? <laughs> Surely you can try and understand a little. <laughs> Sorry. Hello. Hi. I'm, I'm Nigerian or American, whichever one you choose. Um, somebody who's been in this no, country for 27 years. My question to you is not about the, the recent book, but the last book you wrote, which is the Half of the Yellow Sun, which when I picked it up, I couldn't stop it till I finished reading it. Mm -hmm. And I truly and truly relieved the war because mm -hmm. I was in the war. Mm -hmm. And my question is this. The issues that led to the war is still present in Nigeria, and no attempt is being made to deal, understand, and address those issues. The pressures mm. that be on Nigeria is still there. Mm. How do you see those issues, unresolved as it is, affecting the growth and unity of Nigeria going forward? That's another thesis. Excuse me? How many you? So, oh, by the way, for non Igbo speakers, we're just saying that you're all really horrible. No, no I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, you know, I, I'm, first of all, thank you. It means, you know, it, it means very much to me to hear from people who, who, who lived through the war and who've read Half of the Yellow Sun. And because that book means so much to me on so many different levels. And... You know, my I wasn't born during the war. I was born seven years afterwards. But my parents lived through it. My family was deeply, deeply affected by it. And I think many, many Igbo families, many actually, not just Igbo families, but Southeastern families, because there were non-Igbos who were deeply affected as well. And, um, yeah, I, I, I think you're right. That, but I, I do think, again, that we're making very small steps. We're taking small steps toward... We're not a, we're not a nation of people who... Who have a collective memory, or who even who even nurture the idea of memory? We're just not, and I think that says something not just about us, but about how young Nigeria is. Nigeria is very young. I mean, when you think about it, it's a really young nation, and 
Countries like the US, for example, much older, are only just starting to come to terms with their history. So I, I don't think that's, that it's that abnormal. I think, for example, that the way that um, when Ojuku died um, and the way that he was mourned in Nigeria, for me, that meant progress. Because I think 10 years ago, Ojuku dying would not have had the kind of it would not have been given the kind of presence that it was given in Nigeria. I mean, some people might argue that it's about who is the head of state, but, you know, we can leave that aside. Um, so, you know, and so I think that I think that we're making progress. I also think that now people are talking about that period much more. When I was walking on half of the Yellow Sun, Biafra was a bad word. It really was. And whenever I told people I'm walking on a book about Biafra, whether it were or not, it would, they would say to me, leave it alone, you're looking for trouble. And the fact that now you have people talking about it, you have many more people writing about it, making references to it, for me that's progress. I think we still have a long way to go. I want us to, I want Nigeria to come together and remember. I want us to have a memorial that's, that's, that's you know, remarkable. I want us to, to, to teach young people really in detail what happened. We're not there yet, but I think we can get there. And I think that, I think it's a beginning, but it's going to take a while, I think. But... I think one of the most sympathetic characters in the book was DK, am I saying his name right? Mm. And um, I thought it was an interesting thing to develop possibly in future books that you might write. So I just wanted to ask, <laughs> what's next for you? <laughs> well, the next book is going to be called The True Account of DK's Love Life. <laughs> Good. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting to me though that he's the most um, sympathetic to me. Yeah. yeah. Is it I really because like he's is it because he's easy though? Isn't he easy to love? He's kind of safe, isn't he? Yeah, he yeah. is. He is. He's very loosely he's one character who indeed is based on but very loosely, based on the nephew who I adore. Um but very loosely. And so maybe that's why he's slightly romanticized. Yeah. I don't know. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. I have a lot of questions, but I'll try to reduce it to two and a couple of minutes. One is, what is your opinion about discipline of children in America? I'm somewhat <laughs> concerned about this. And I've lived in Nigeria, and I can recall going into classrooms, and you could hear a pen drop. No noise. My husband said, you know, when we went to school, my husband's in Nigeria. He said, when we went to school, you almost peed on yourself. Just think about what was going to happen when you get there. But now it's reversed. The teachers almost pee on themselves going, going to school. So we need a lot of help with this because it is, so as these children go, so goes this nation. And it's in a lot of trouble right now. So I just wondered what your opinion is on it. My, my other question really has to do with the place of the extended family in uh, in, in terms of strengthening the country or weakening the country or whatever. Because it seems to me that so much is put on the oldest child. My son is the oldest, you know, and it's like it's, you know, you never have enough to give. You never give enough, okay? And and you can be a long-suffering, masochistic person. I am not. I have to draw a line and say this is what we can do. This is what we cannot do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Right, I shall now explore the varieties of peeing. I'm not peeing on oneself. <laughs> where, where is your husband from? Uh, he's a marginal man. He's a part Igbo and part, part good. And he was born in uh, 
elation, and uh, he was raised in Lagos. And at the time he was raised in Lagos, he was like, you knew no Yoruba or Igbo, they sort of blended together, but now the distinctions are very strict. And you find that there's a lot of loyalty amongst the Igbos to the Igbos, a lot of loyalty of the Yoruba amongst the Yoruba. Meantime, the North is getting real smart. You know, and they're, <laughs> they're sending people all right. over the world um, for education. We're just about to um, I, The reason I ask is that I, I do think that there are differences in culture. By the way, that what you say about the, the sort of the ethnic cleavages is true, but I think it's true mostly when you're in Nigeria. When we're outside Nigeria, it, it starts to blur a little. So I think if somebody said something nasty about Nigeria, all Nigerians here would rise up, and we wouldn't care, Yoruba, Igbo wherever we're like what you know we all become Nigerians so um, and then when we get back we sort of remember that they're divisions but um, I think my generation cares I mean I think that ethnicity will always matter and that's not necessarily a bad thing either because we have different cultures and we have different ways of looking at things and um, so you know I, I like to tell the story about my sister-in-law who also happens to be you know one of my closest friends who is Yoruba and when she first married my brother I would observe her family and wonder why there was such a fuss about people kneeling down to greet their elders. Because having been raised Igbo, there just wasn't that sort of um, that ceremony about respect. We didn't have it in Igbo land. And she would look at me and say, you people are so disrespectful to your elders. And I would look at her and say, this is just a melodrama. Right? So, so, the, so, the, so, so that's an example of the, the differences with, with culture. But... Um, I think the problem in Nigeria often is that it becomes politicized. So it's less about the cultural differences and more about how people then decide how they want to allocate resources and we only want a Yoruba person in this position and that sort of nonsense. That's where it becomes a problem. Um, the question about <laughs> discipline and peeing, or not peeing, I, I don't know. I, find I, I really, again, it's one of those, I think it's about context and what works for people. When I was growing up, I went to the university primary school um, and really everything I know today I learned in that primary school. And sometimes your teachers would flog you. Only when I came to the U.S. did I realize I was supposed to have been outraged by this. <laughs> I really wasn't. I really wasn't. But also I should say that, there were, that, that it wasn't sort of indiscriminate, crazy beating of children. Is that even as children we understood what the rules were, and we sort of, you, you know, you, we didn't feel, I certainly didn't feel abused. I think I've grown up to be a, a fairly, fairly normal person. And, and so because of that, I'm not a person who will say, I think all capital punishment is terrible. I think it's contextual. Um, but if I, if I had, but also what's interesting, of course, is that I don't have children. If I had children, I don't know how I would feel about strangers beating them in school. I don't know. I think it's a different time. I think many people of my generation who are having children now are choosing not to, to discipline them in the way that our parents disciplined. But also, you know, growing up, it wasn't that, I guess maybe I was spanked two times. My brother, okay, was maybe spanked 12 times because, you know, he really needed it. But, um, so I just think that it's, it's, um, yeah, but I think it's also, it's not so much about the use of, of pain, it's about how one does it. I remember my father, who's a professor, would have us come to study, and he would give you a little lecture about what you'd done wrong. And then, by the way, my father had this chart for the crime committed and the number of, of, of lashes. So, you know, smaller crimes, you got maybe three. 
for bigger crimes. And, and as a child, you understood that this was in some ways a kind of justice being done. <laughs> and, and so I think really it depends on how it's done. I, um, my, my, my experience wasn't like your husband's. I, there was no question of peeing or not peeing out of fear because I liked school and my teachers were not mean. And when I did get spanked, I mean, there were a few times I argued, but again, I was slightly unusual. So, you know, once, for example, this is completely random, just forgive me. Um, this teacher walks into the class, just, we're all supposed to rise up and say, good afternoon, Mr. whatever his name was. And we all stood up, and because we're kids, we're 10, we said, good afternoon, Lexis. Now, Lexis was the part of English that he taught us. He was furious. He said, all of you, line up. And he gets his stick and he starts spanking us. And I remember then, as a 10-year-old, I said, no. I said, you won't spank me because I don't see why I should be punished for this. I said, you don't, have, you don't know that I, I said that. You don't know that I didn't say your name. Which, by the way, got me into a lot of trouble because then he told the headmaster, the headmaster told my father, it got very complicated. But he, anyway, I think I'll stop there. But so, yeah. Okay, hello, my name is Chika and I'm Nachi. I'm a Nigerian. I'm also a huge, huge fan. And um, I was very touched by the book, the last book that you just uh, wrote. Mm. I saw a lot of myself in it, and I'm beginning mm. to, I've been here a long time, I'm beginning to have that homesickness of going home and mm. all that after being away for a long time. And I wanted to comment on the fact that in that book, you made the center character a strong lady who also was very, uh, wasn't afraid to be vulnerable at certain times. And you also touched on the struggle of the immigrant in this country, what we go through here, trying to assimilate, trying to progress when we come to America. And that story of the hairdresser who had been here and was trying to force her boyfriend to marry her so she could go home and see a dying mother because or a, 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 the father had died or now the mom was sick. It really touched me and I was wondering if you get if you if you actually contemplated on including that immigrant st struggle story in there to um, help open the eyes of some people that might read the book and not realize that, or just see immigrants and not realize that they actually do go through a whole bunch of stuff struggling in this society, mm. trying to get ahead, and regardless of how they came, they go yeah. through so much struggle. No, I, I didn't write the book to open anybody's eyes, really. I just wrote the book because it's the stories that I care about, and it's the stories that I know. And and I know many women like like the hairdresser. Actually, the hairdresser is kind of based on on a real hairdresser. Um, and I remember, I, I, I make notes all the time about things. And I remember sitting there when this woman was braiding my hair, and, and I think she was Ivorian, not Senegalese, and she just starts telling me about her two Igbo boyfriends. And I thought, this is... This, it's one of those things where you're thinking this is fantastic for fiction, but even in fiction it would be slightly unbelievable. <laughs> and um, but, but you know the, the, the stories of, of I, I do think though that one of the things I wanted to do, not not in a conscious way, but just because it happens to be the stories that I know, is that I think when we when when the, the general idea, the perception of Africa and Africa's immigrants is one of just in hopelessness, and and it's that that people who constantly want who who take you know government money, they're refugees. You have to go settle them in some sort of you know place in I don't know Utah or or, or somewhere. And 
and all the tensions that happen in these small white communities. And, and those stories are important and true, and they're happening in this country. But I think there's so many other stories about African immigrants. They're immigrants who are just incredibly hardworking. A friend of, a friend of mine said to me once that Nigerian immigrants would, in fact, in, in this country be called the model minority, except for the little fact that they're black. Because, actually, um, statistically, Nigerian immigrants are the most educated. They, you know, you, um, here's another random story, and I promise this is the last one, then we'll end. Someone on the flight from Lagos to the US last week, um, this American man who was seated next to me said to the flight attendant, he said, I just want to let you know I'm a, I'm a, I'm a doctor. So like, if, if they need a doctor, just let me know. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, then the, and then the flight attendant looks at him and says to him, this is a flight from Lagos. If we called for a doctor, half the plane would get up. <laughs> uh, I think that's a good place to end. <laughs> I just want to say thank you all so much for coming. I've had so much fun. <laughs> thank you, Judy.